Hello and welcome to Happier, a podcast about how to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. This week, we'll talk about how to read more, and we'll talk to the brilliant writer and editor Sam Walker about his new book, The Captain Class. I'm Gretchen Rubin. I'm in New York City, and with me is my sister, the sage, Elizabeth Kraft. That's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in L.A. And Gretchen, if anyone hopefully wants to hear me be sage-like on another podcast, (laughs) I'm now also the co-host of the new podcast, Happier in Hollywood. So check that out. Oh my gosh, it's so good. I love Happier in Hollywood. Um, Now, Elizabeth, before we jump in, it was so fun to hear from people about the haiku. One of our Try This at Homes recently was to write a haiku as sort of an exercise in creativity and mindfulness. And we've heard from so many people who are really enjoying the whole haiku writing process. Yes. You know what I've done, Gretchen? I've taken to when I'm doing informed fitness or we're lifting heavy weights and it's so unpleasant, I, I write haikus then. It's like, take my mind off of what I'm doing. That is a brilliant idea. I'm going to do that. I'm going tomorrow. It's my 501st training session, by the way. And I will now be writing haiku in my head. That's excellent. Okay. Well, tweet tweet a haiku after <laughs> tomorrow. Okay. So this haiku we got um, from Mark in New York. He says, love the haiku idea. Already feeling calmer on my way to work after writing my first one. We'll definitely try using this as a way to slow racing thoughts and ease anxiety in the future. He says, the background of this haiku is my husband and I are moving and our apartment is currently being shown. We are both messy. So every morning we frantically clear up the prior day's clutter. Today after cleaning, I was late to work and I would have been a nervous mess just anticipating the inevitable delays on the subway, but then I turned on your podcast. And his haiku is, light streams through glass panes, windows scattering glimmer, a clean house sells well. That's awesome. That's awesome. Camilla wrote, I also love haiku and have been composing them on and off for a while now. Since I'm a digital artist, I recently decided that I also wanted to illustrate them. I did a few but have a lot to go. Below is one of my favorites. Those who don't do art on the computer could do this using other art media like painting, drawing, coloring pages, or collage. And I thought this was a great idea to combine writing a haiku with sort of with visual art. And Jean's haiku is, birds twitter outside, tickling my ears awake eyelids stay heavy. Love that. And the art accompanying Jean's haiku is just beautiful. So thank you, Jean. It's been so much fun to read people's haiku. So remember to post your haiku on Twitter using the hashtag happierhaiku. And now it's time for a try this at home. Yeah. And Elizabeth, this week, our try this at home tip is to read more. And one of the things I have to say when I was writing my book, Better Than Before, about habit change is I was so surprised and encouraged by how many people told me that they really wanted to change the habit of reading so that they would read more. I love to read, you love to read, but I was it was interesting to me that so many people were working on the habit of reading more. Yeah, and I feel like it's something I'm always working on, Gretch. Um, I feel like when I was younger, I just read all the time. And as I get older, I feel like I have less time to read, although... I know I'm doing things other than reading. I could be reading more, like watching The Housewives. You know, and I don't know if other people have this problem, but one thing I find is that 
I just have a problem starting a book. So it's like, I might have a book sitting there that I want to read and I won't read the first page. Once I read the first two or three pages, I'm in. And if I like it, I'll find the time and I'll finish the book. But it's just opening the book is such a barrier to entry for me. Well, so in a weird way, what you need is just the habit of reading the first two pages of a book. Just that might take you a long way. So what do you what do you think you could do to have that habit? I don't know. Maybe I need to say something like as soon as I finish a book, I Mm. pick up something and read the first two pages of another book Mm. because I could go three weeks, you know, between books just because I haven't picked one up. I think that's a fantastic idea to have like Anthony Trollope when he wrote novels, he wrote a certain amount each day and he would literally like write, write, write. And then he would write the end and then he would just start the next one. And so maybe that's a good idea is mm. as sort of a celebration of finishing a book, which, which always feels good to kind of finish a book. You could say, OK, in this same reading period, pick up and start the next one. That sounds fun and manageable. What do you think? Yeah, I think I should try that. And I always have one right there, you know, at the ready. So it shouldn't be a problem. Right. Right. Well, another thing that I've done that has really given me a lot more time to read bizarrely is to quit reading. I used Mm. to have this idea that like a real reader finishes every book she starts. Mm. But what would happen is that I would be reading a book I didn't like and then I wouldn't be reading very much because it just wasn't any fun to read. And so it would slow me down. But now if I lose interest in a book, I stop reading it. And so now I have so much more time to read the books that I love. And I'm always reading a book that I feel like reading. And so it's more fun and more time. Yeah, I think that is a great point. I think a lot of us feel really guilty if yeah. we don't finish a book. It feels like a sin. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's, and I think it's because you feel like, well, I can't count this book. If yes. I don't finish it, I haven't really read it. Yeah. And so it also just feels like a lack of an accomplishment. But yeah. we're really not reading to uh, to accomplish like checking having read a book off our list we're really reading to read so if you just think of it that way finishing loses its importance well and also i mean kind of picking up the same idea and this is what you said is when i'm reading a book i love i'm amazed by how quickly i can read it how much time Mm -hmm. i find to read it Mm -hmm. if there's a book you love you find the time but if you're not that enthusiastic about it you're like "Eh, i don't have any time to read so there's this great line by thoreau who said Read the best books first. Otherwise, you'll find you do not have time. And I really think Mm. it's true. So what else can people do? I mean, this is a question that we get over and over and over again. Well, one thing I think is to skim. This is something that I've learned. Like if you read newspapers and magazines, and I still read them in paper form, a lot of times you get what you need by skimming. You don't have to like read in a very, very slow way and you get through a lot more. And so sometimes I really say to myself, I just want to skim through this. I just want to get the gist. I don't have to read it slowly. I'm going to really push myself to read it faster. Yeah, that's definitely true for like a parenting book, for example. You may think like, oh, it's so daunting to read this whole big book about parenting. But a lot of times you can look at the chapters, see what, you know, relates to your life read it um, and get a lot out of it. And a lot of times books, nonfiction books will have um, at the end of the chapter, you know, what we've learned. Yeah. And you can read that and get a lot out of it. Right. And then see, like, do I want to go back and read a particular part? Yeah. I'm reading a parenting book right now. And that is excellent advice. (laughs) Well, and, you know, Elizabeth, you just said how you always have something waiting to read. And I think that's really helpful is just is 
always have something good to read so that you're excited to read and never go anywhere empty handed. Mm-hmm. And this is one way when I travel, because I travel a lot, I always want to read print books. So I'll bring several print books with me. But then I also bring a digital reader and I can check out books from my library on my e-reader. And so then I never risk being without something to read for like a long flight or something because that terrifies me. Um, and then you get more reading done because you're never at a loss for what to read. Yeah, I I try to think of things like waiting at the doctor's office or something like that is like a great reading time, you know, so it's like, oh, I can actually look forward to being in line because I'm going to be reading. It's a great way to reframe it. And I actually know somebody who, um, well, when the Panoply Studios moved, they moved locations about a year and a half ago. And somebody said, oh, my commute's gotten so much shorter. And I'm so sad because that's my best reading time. Mm -hmm. And I loved my long commute. And I thought, well, that's a way to reframe a commute. You know, either way you win. Yeah, you don't hear that often. That's <laughs> a great point. I know. Uh, that's the beauty of the subway. You can read while you're commuting. And then you can also read at non-traditional times. Like I find most people think you should read right before you go to bed. And they're like, well, I get into bed and I start to read, but then I fall asleep. And I go, well, then maybe that's not the best time to read. <laughs> I can't read before bed. I always fall asleep immediately. I don't understand how anybody does that. Yeah, so you can find unconventional times to do it. I have a friend who works in book publishing. And one of the things people say if you work in book publishing is you have no time to read for fun because you have to read for work all the time. So he specifically gets up at five o'clock every morning because he loves to read. And so he reads for fun for a couple of hours before going into work. And he's a morning person. He's a lark. So this works for him. This would not work for everybody. But for him, it's this wonderful part of the day where he gets to do that reading for fun. It wouldn't work for everybody, but he found a a way to carve that time out of his day. Yeah. I also think people could read at lunch. Yeah, You know, I think lunch, sometimes you're just kind of surfing the internet or maybe chatting with someone, but for no real reason. It's like if you took a book and went to your office and just read for half an hour, that could be really enjoyable and feel like a real break from the day when often lunch doesn't really feel like a break from the day. Yes, no, exactly. And that's back to this idea of if you're reading a book that you really love, you're like, oh my gosh, I have this oasis in the middle of my day when I'm going to be reading this wonderful book. It feels very restorative. And yet you don't have to make a lot of plans and arrangements. It's fun to meet a friend for lunch, but you can't always manage that. But you could sneak away and read a book for a half an hour. And of course, we have to talk about the strategy of having a book club, which we've discussed many times, <laughs> the the pros and the cons and the struggles <laughs> and, and glories of book clubs. But yeah. I do think for a lot of people, having a book club um, is a great way to make sure you find time to read because you're like, well, I have to have this book read by you know May 1st. Yes, I'm in four book clubs. They are the light of my life. Um, And also for obligers, if you're having trouble reading, it's an accountability structure because if everybody's going to be annoyed if you haven't read the book, you know you're going to get at least one book read. Yes. So let us know if you found any other good strategies to find more time to read. And uh, what have you tried? What's worked for you? Have some of these strategies worked for you? Have you found other things? When I was working on my book, Better Than Before, about habit change, I created a PDF called Reading Better Than Before because so many people asked me about how to change their habits to read more. So I'll post a link to that in the show notes for this. And this is happiercast.com slash 121. Um, and also there's this wonderful kind of manifesto that Daniel Panak wrote called The 10 Inalienable Rights of the Reader, which is wonderful. And I will post a link to that in the show notes as well. So go to happiercast.com slash 121 for all these links. 
Noom is the habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Based in psychology, Noom teaches you why you do the things you do and empowers you with the tools you need to break bad habits and replace them with better ones. Because everyone's different, Noom adjusts to your lifestyle. They teach you the psychology behind the decisions you make and then help you keep track of everything from workouts and steps to analyze your diet and recommending healthy recipes. Noom also connects you with a personally assigned goal specialist and a community of other Noomers, so you have all the support you need to empower your change. Gretch, you know, I love Noom. I love all the tools it has, especially the step tracker and the weight tracker. I rely on those every day. Yep, you don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com slash happier. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash happier. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash happier to start your trial today. This week's happiness hack comes from Michael Melcher. And Michael was the one who suggested back in episode 52, a try this at home of asking yourself, what happens if I ignore this? Michael has a podcast himself, a great podcast called Meanwhile, and he emailed us with a happiness hack. So he says, here's a happiness hack that combines outer order, inner calm with spend out in so far as gas station vacuums cost a couple of bucks to use. The other day, I was feeling especially stressed and overwhelmed. My two-year-old twin sons were being especially chaotic. My 85-year-old father was visiting for a week, and I was following behind at work. Plus, the weather had been overcast and gloomy for a week. I had to make a long drive for work in my filthy Honda CRV. Did I mention I have twin toddlers? <laughs> I rarely clean the inside of the car because it's such a pain to use my home vacuum cleaner in the driveway. On a whim, during my drive, I stopped at a gas station. I keep lots of quarters in my car at all times, another happiness hack, so I paid the two bucks required to use the gas station vacuum. Within three minutes, the time allotted by the machine, I'd pretty much managed to vacuum the floors and seats of the car. I got back in feeling immeasurably calmer. I no longer felt like an overwhelmed parent skating on the edge of chaos, but instead like a pretty with it parent who was <laughs> juggling things pretty well. When there's lots in your life you can't control, one thing you can control is how the inside of your car looks and feels. And if you have a powerful gas station vacuum, <laughs> it only takes about three minutes. Well, I can tell you the back of my car, Gretchen, <laughs> from having uh, a seven-year-old in it is disgusting, and I should definitely do this. Well, it's a great idea, and I think it's exactly what Michael says, which is a lot of times people report that when you get control over the stuff of life, you feel more in control of your life generally. And even though it's obviously kind of an irrational feeling to have, it's it really does help. You really do feel like, wow, you know, I vacuumed my car. Now I can take on the world. Yeah, it's not only that it's just more pleasant to have a cleaner car, it's that you feel, it's the way I feel if I have my nails done. I'm like, if I have a good pedicure, then I'm on top of things. And it's just that same feeling of like, if I can do this, then I'm doing okay. Well, and I think there are certain places in our lives that feel more kind of representative of ourselves. Like, you know, we talk a lot about making your bed. And I think your bed feels like yourself more than like, an armchair feels like yourself mm -hmm. or in your car also feels like you in a way. And so when you are messy and out of control and disheveled, represented by your car, it feels bad. And getting that car under control is just the same feeling as making your bed. You feel like somehow you've metaphorically gotten yourself under control. 
Yeah, it's the shame thing. You can get your shame under control, too, because I think a lot of us feel shame about having a dirty car. I know I do. (laughs) Well, again, if you want to listen to more of Michael's wisdom, check out his podcast called Meanwhile. Lots of great ideas there. And Gretchen, now it is time for our interview with Sam Walker. Yes. We're so excited to be talking today to Sam Walker. Sam is a brilliant journalist. He's the Wall Street Journal's deputy editor for Enterprise, which is the unit that oversees the paper's in-depth page one features and investigative reporting projects. He's also been a reporter, a columnist, a sports editor. His first book, Fantasyland, is the best-selling account of his attempt to win America's top fantasy baseball expert competition, (laughs) whatever that is. (laughs) Now, the reason I know Sam and am so intrigued by the new book that he's just written is that he is the husband of Christy Fletcher, who is my agent, my literary agent. And Elizabeth, she's also your agent for some things. Yes. And uh, for just about the whole time that I've known him, Sam has been fascinated by this question of, what makes for a great team, and then also what makes for a great captain. And he's been doing the research and writing for the book that just hit the shelves called The Captain Class, The Hidden Force That Creates the World's Greatest Teams. And we are so excited to be talking to him today. Welcome, Sam. Sam, we are so happy to have you with us in the studio today here in downtown Brooklyn. Thank you for coming in. Gretchen, thanks. It's such an honor to be here. I love the podcast, and you've just been an inspiration to me. (laughs) As your, your your sayings and your wisdom are all over my house 24 hours a day, so we kind of live by a lot of <laughs> Excellent, excellent. We all live by Gretchen's sayings. She's in our heads. I don't... Yeah. Uh, yeah, the happiness bully uh, strikes again. Um, well, Sam, the thing that was so fascinating about your book is you start by identifying the greatest teams of all time, which is a huge feat in itself. And I'm sure you've had in like enormous heated conversations with people who want to dispute. But then from there, you went on to try to understand what they had in common. And were you surprised to find that what they had in common was a captain? Completely surprised. Yeah. I mean, I really came in with no preconceptions about what would happen. You know, and like a lot of people, I thought if you if you wanted to look at team dynamics, you would look at, at talent yeah. or coaching or money or tactics. And all of those things seemed very obvious to me. But when I looked at the patterns of the teams that I selected, I mean, it just it was a slap your forehead moment. It was very clear. There was one player whose career spanned the, the winning streak in every case, and it was always the captain. So yeah, I didn't believe it because it was so simple. I had to go back and <laughs> retest everything. But uh, no, it became a, a book about – started as a book about great teams and became a book about leadership because I think that's really the key. And what was interesting to me is that so much of what you found out about captains was counterintuitive. Yeah. They weren't the people that you sort of expected them to be. It made no sense. What surprised <laughs> No, really. Yeah. Everything surprised me. I mean, I, I said in the book, I got into my mid-40s, and I never really given any thought to a pretty fundamental question, which is if you were going into a tough fight as a, as a group, who would you choose to lead? And, you know, I had, like everyone, had this picture of someone who's a, a, an incredible talent, who's charismatic, mm. who is, um, you know, highest possible ethical standards, um, just <laughs> someone who seemed completely obvious, eloquent, you know, like a, a celebrity type, someone who was magnetic. And, you know, it was completely the opposite. I mean, the, the captains of these teams, first of all, I didn't know who a lot of them were. I knew the teams, but I didn't even know who the captain was. And I didn't recognize some of their names. 
And, you know, they were completely the opposite. They were not stars. They were not charismatic. They shunned attention. They really hated the spotlight. And, uh, you know, they often kind of pushed the rules to the edge and sometimes broke them. And I kept finding these crazy incidents and things they did that just seemed unhinged or weird. (laughs) And it took me (laughs) such a long time to figure out what was really going on. And I had to really delve into science and uh, behavioral science to get a grip on some of these things. But in the end, they were just incredibly similar to one another. Well, that was what was interesting to me was like, if you think about like classic sportsmanlike behavior, they were not sportsmanlike, but that ended up being what was so effective about them. You know, it was the sportsmanship thing was really fascinating because I, you know, we we expect that and we expect that out of captains in particular. We think that if you're where, if you're the captain that you were held to a higher standard of behavior. And, you know, what I kept seeing was, they would do things in competition, um, hurling insults at opponents, you know, <laughs> doing kind of vicious, mm-hmm. making vicious plays that were on the border of legality um, or even, you know, kind of blatantly bending the rules as much as they could. And I, I saw this. But what I realized was that in, in studying uh, this kind of behavior, risk taking, aggressive behavior, that there are really two kinds of aggression and and one is is a hostile kind and, and you might do things something risky or something aggressive in order to hurt someone and that's toxic but there's another kind that's instrumental aggression which is uh, something done in the to, to further the pursuit of a goal mm. and what I realized was that these captains there was one thing they all had in common which is they might push the rules on the field but off the field they were just completely quiet law-abiding, you know, almost introverted homebody, never got in trouble. <laughs> so it wasn't a lifestyle. It was something they did within the confines of the rules of sports to push them to the absolute limit. And I think that's interesting, not just in sports, but in business, because I think you see a lot of executives who, you know, Steve Jobs, for example, who really pushed the limits of decorum and what's considered decent behavior in a business context. But, you know, outside of that realm wasn't necessarily like that. So I think there's there's a that taught me an interesting lesson about, you know, the, how to further a team's goals. Yeah, I mean, for me being in Hollywood, this was really eye-opening because I feel like I am, you know, always value ethical behavior like the Derek Jeter model you use like emulating that sort of behavior, but really in Hollywood a lot of times this aggression that you talk about is what's uh, rewarded. And I'm like, God, I should try to sort of strategically <laughs> think about how to be, you know, maybe a little less pleasant. Well, I think there's a way to differentiate because I think that these things that they did in competition were really aimed at furthering the goals of a team, of a collective. And I think a lot of the aggressive behavior you see is designed to further one's own interests. Mm. And there's a big difference mm. because, you know, everything that these mm. Captains did. Now they weren't thugs. I mean, they didn't do this routinely, but I, I noticed that in moments. My favorite example was the Cuban women's volleyball team. <laughs> now I know you've heard oh, of them, <laughs> but no, this is the this is unbeknownst to me was is the greatest Olympic team of all time. They basically didn't lose for ten years, and they wow. were incredible. From a tiny country, they beat everyone in the world. Yeah. And you know, the example I note in the book is their captain uh, in the, at the ninety six Olympics. They were really up against it, and they were. 
listless and they were losing and, and they thought they weren't going to win the gold medal. So she pulled out this strategy against Brazil where she told her teammates to just hurl the most vicious insults they could think of at the Brazilians to try to rattle them. <laughs> and it, sure enough, it worked. You know, they started playing too aggressively and beating themselves and they wound up winning. And you know, I talked to her uh, in Havana about this a couple of years ago when I interviewed her and she she said, you know what, that's a tool that you use. It was mm. a show, you know, for the, in the pursuit of a medal. But when you're off the field, you go back to normal. You're a polite person. You abide by the rules of society. But when you're in competition, it's the rules of sport and what you can get away with. And if you don't push it to the absolute limit when necessary, you know, you're not going to win. Well, see, that's what I found so interesting about the book because I have to say, like, you nerd out so much on, like, the statistics and the <laughs> yeah. history and the sports, which to me was, like, meaningless. I don't know anything about sports. But it was fascinating to me as a study in human nature and how people can exert leadership under high stress conditions and, like, what works and what doesn't work. And that's what I think is so kind of exceptional about your book is that it's about sports. And, I, and if you love sports, you'll love the book. But it doesn't even matter if you don't like sports because it's just fascinating to see how people behave. And you, it must have been so interesting to draw all those tiny portraits of people. It was – I learned so much. But the thing that I think is is really interesting, and I think this um, dovetails a lot with the work that you've done, Gretchen, you know, and, and the listeners of, of your podcast. I, I mean this is about behavior, you know. Mm -hmm. The, the seven traits that I found that these captains had in common, skill wasn't one of them. Charisma is not one of them. Mm. Um, it's really about the choices you make every day and the habits you have and the, the things that you do every hour of every day and every moment. And that's what leadership is. I think we think it's uh, about big speeches and big stepping up in big moments. But it's really <laughs> about everything you do constantly every day. And the other thing that I thought was interesting was in terms of happiness is this idea of collective happiness. Mm. You know, we talk mm. a lot about individual happiness and, and, and how we make ourselves feel better. But there, there's this weird thing that happens on these teams where there's a kind of collective – it's not exactly happiness, but everyone feels comfortable in themselves and comfortable to contribute and to talk. And, and these are very talkative teams. And I think there's a whole range of study that I haven't seen much on about, you know, happy teams and happy mm. collectives and being mm -hmm. happy inside a collective uh, and being happy with, with when that goals of the collective are met as opposed to your individual goals. So mm. I, there, there were so many different facets of this that I thought were, uh, were interesting. And what are, Sam, the seven methods of elite leaders? I'm sure we all want to know. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll ramble through them. So the first is um, that they, they have this doggedness, relentlessness. And you saw this over and over again with these uh, captains. I mean, even in meaningless games, they kind of play to their absolute maximum uh, and, you know, played through hideous injuries. One of these, one hockey captain played, had a heart attack. And kept playing. Um, you know, they just were completely relentless. And a lot of studies show that relentlessness in a team context can be contagious and that other people will raise their effort level. So that kind of explains mm. why it was helpful. Another one was that they were what I call water carriers, which was surprising. They weren't the, the big stars on the team who take the big shot with the game on the line or the biggest superstars. They tended to play supporting roles and to do the grunt work that needed to be done for the team uh, in the shadow of their famous teammates. Another thing that I thought was really broadly applicable to the world was their communication style. I mean, I always thought that 
to, to motivate people, you have to give a big speech, right? <laughs> yeah. but, uh-huh. but what was amazing was not one of these people ever gave speeches to their teammates, did not address them, did not like to do it, in uh-huh. fact, avoided it. And it, it was amazing. So the big speech is clearly overrated, but they had another style of communication, which was very practical. They would circulate widely, talking to everyone individually about the task at hand and in very sort of high energy, concentrated ways in the moment. And, what this and they cre- touch each other, and right? They, yeah, I right. thought that was so fascinating that a lot of times they just like be patting and touching and kind of yeah. physically connecting. Right. No, there was a there's a physical side to it and body language and uh, eyes too. They would use their uh, Tim Duncan of the San Antonio Spurs is a great example of this. I mean, he's not a colorful person. You know, people say he's boring, uh, which he he tends to be in public. But you watch him communicate, and he uses his eyes, and he touches people, and he talks to them very intently. Mm. And that's the way to create a kind of talkative culture inside a team. And these teams would solve problems in the moment as they rose. There would never be any subtext or anything left unsaid. And I think that was really important. Mm. A couple other things. They uh, they had incredible emotional control. It was just mm. amazing. And my favorite example was this uh, Jerome Fernandez, who you don't know either. Uh, he was the captain of this French national handball team, which is <laughs> you know, not a big sport here. Big sport in Europe. Um, but the best one ever by far. And he found out two days before the world championships that his father was dying of cancer and in the hospital and had days to live. So he had a wrenching decision to make. So what did he do? Well, he decided to stay and play. He also decided not to tell anyone what was going mm. on because he didn't want to distract his teammates. So he not only played well, he played brilliantly. He scored the clinching goal in, in the final minute and then sort of collapsed on the court, you know, in tears and, and made it back to see his father, I should say. But that's the kind of control to be able to compete at a level like that when you're going through something really emotionally difficult. And a couple of other things there was, there's, they were dissenters. I mean, the thing that really surprised me was mm. they were hard to manage. They would create conflict on their teams, but their conflict was never personal. It was always directed at, making sure the team played better. Mm. Yeah, they were they were really difficult um, and independent-minded. And then there's the rule-breaking thing, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah. I mean, that was really surprising. Now, Sam, to talk about you for a minute, you know, we always talk about the four tendencies, um, which is what are, if you're an upholder or a questioner, obliger or rebel. And Christy Fletcher, your wife, is a questioner. And we interviewed her as kind of an iconic questioner in episode 36 so I think I know your tendency, but what's, what's your tendency? I am a capital Q questioner. <laughs> two questioners together. Oh I yeah. think she told a story about how the two of you couldn't pick a dishwasher brand right. for like no. two years or something because yeah, of all the no questioning. No. <laughs> it would spiral into an existential crisis about what we're doing and where yeah. we're going. And, you know, <laughs> the other one I, I don't think she mentioned, which is just a perennial with us, is what do we do for vacation? Yeah. It ah. just becomes this crisis of like, who are we? Do we want adventure? Do we, should we take the kids and do something, you know, lazy? Should we do something? Should we go to Europe? Should we, yeah. are we resort people? Are we cruise? <laughs> what are we? <laughs> so it's just maddening. I mean, it's, it's more work. I think we spend more time deciding where to go than we actually spend on vacation. So. 
Um, the nice thing is that because we're both questioners, I think when we both agree strongly yes. on something, yes. we know it's yes. right. And if she agrees and I, then, you know, I don't think we make many mistakes when we both agree on something. Well, and sometimes two questioners who are married will say something like, I wouldn't trust most people to make a decision. But because I know this person's also a questioner, I know that they're as thorough as I would be. And so I can I don't have to do the research. And so it's less work for me because I trust their judgment. Yeah, that's definitely true. That's a very good part of it. And how about try, uh, try this at home? We always ask um, our guests to provide a try this at home, something concrete and manageable for people to try. What have you got? Well, so exercise was the thing that always got squeezed out for me. When, Ironically, since you write so much about sports. I know. And I'm a, <laughs> I was just becoming a blah. So. Uh, but, you know, I, when I started really doing the book and, and having my job at the same time, I decided I had to hack exercise somehow. So what I did was I started riding my bike in the, in the morning to uh, to the office. I figured I'll turn my I'll weaponize my commute. Right? Mm. Um, mm. But what this kind of evolved in an amazing way, which is I started using the city bike share bikes in New York and I loved it because I didn't have to do any maintenance. But but I couldn't get a parking spot in the morning, so that led to getting up earlier and earlier. And then I realized in the middle of this that I was so much more productive if I got up really early in the morning. Mm. I've always been an owl, like mm -hmm. plastic yes. owl. Mm. And, you know, but suddenly, like, everything changed. I was a better mood when I got home. I I didn't stay up late. I, I think I was more productive at the office. And, uh, and I was getting that daily little bit of exercise. I used to binge exercise and I would – find time to exercise or go too far, run too fast, you know, and I would, I would be sore. But I realized with this little incremental little bit of exercise every day, I right. felt much better. I think the results were the same. And, and then I became a morning person, which is really a huge revolution in my life. And I changed. I know you don't necessarily believe. No, 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 no. It's I think possible, no. But I so far. Well, one thing about um, uh, whether people are, are larks or owls is affected by age. So people who are mm. old, like very young and older, tend to be more larkish. So it might be just like as you used to be an owl, and now you're moving more into lark. But that's good. I mean, if you can if you can make a commute into something positive, like reading more or exercising, it's just such a benefit. It's great. No. And Sam, what I want to know is now that your book is done, Ooh. because I assume you were writing this Ooh, book in those early morning hours, are you still going to the office early? Good question. Yes. No, I am. You know, it, one of the benefits of the revolution in newspapers is that we are publishing all the time now. And uh -huh. uh, so we, you know, my my partner in crime at, at the journal, we've, um, Wall Street Journal where I work. We, uh, we've really pushed our production schedule forward. So we, so the busiest time is in the morning. Mm. And, you know, there are days when we're really getting out of there much earlier. So the old newspaper days of waiting till the press yeah. is on <laughs> at 7 o'clock, those are going away, thankfully. So we're becoming more normal. Well, Sam, thanks so much for coming by. Again, his book is The Captain Class, The Hidden Force That Creates the World's Greatest Teams. It is so full of fascinating counterintuitive information about how to lead that I think uh, everyone will find to be super fascinating. So thanks so much for yes, coming here to you, Brooklyn. Sam. Thanks, guys. This was terrific. Thank you. Okay, Gretch, it is time for demerits and gold stars. And this week you are up with a happiness demerit. So I'm not sure if this is a demerit or not. It feels like a demerit. Elizabeth, you can tell me. So as you know, I'm very scared to drive. Uh, you have, as am I. Yeah, you've battled this too, but you live in LA, so that's worse for you. 
So for a long time, I read about this in Happier at Home. For a long time, I kind of quit driving because I live in New York City and I don't really need to drive. And then I was realizing this is bad. I'm really not driving. I'm feeling more and more scared to drive. So as part of my project for Happier at Home, I actually took driving lessons and got back into driving. So that was good. Now, every summer for the last couple of years, we've rented a little house in upstate New York in Dutchess County. And what I did as a way to get myself to drive is I would drive there. And Mm -hmm. I would drive there because leaving New York, it starts out very, very stressful because you're driving in New York City. And then as you get closer and closer to the house, it would become more and more calm. And so and as we were driving, I would become more and more kind of exhausted and depleted. Mm -hmm. And so at least it was getting easier. So this was very exhausting for me and I really dreaded doing it. And it was hard driving because it was like driving in New York City and like a lot of like fancy, you know, switching from here Mm -hmm. and exits and all this. And New York is a hard place to drive. So this summer I decided I'm not going to do that drive because it was just kind of casting a shadow on our summer weekends because I would just dread it so much. And I thought, well, what I'm going to do instead is drive when we're there. So like drive to the Mm. grocery store, drive to the diner. So I'm still in the practice of like getting in the car and driving and how do you use the GPS and, you know, all that business and feeling like comfortable in the car. But I'm not going to do these arduous drives. But part of me feels like is that kind of the coward's way out or is that just being realistic? And it is a very hard kind of driving. I mean, I think anybody anywhere would say it's very hard to drive in New York City. So I, I, it's kind of a demerit, and maybe it's kind of not a demerit. I don't know. Well, I have to say, first of all, I would never drive in New York City, period. Oh, well, well, that makes me feel better. So you're better. already way ahead of me. <laughs> um, and the other thing I said, you've done it. So look, if there were an emergency and you had to drive in New York City, you could do it. Yeah. So I think you should be easier on yourself and say, you know what? You've tackled that. You've done it. The truth is you may never need to do it again. So why beat yourself up and have this unpleasantness instead of just looking forward to your weekend to relax? It was like becoming a burden that you're going to have to do this drive. So, I mean, I kind of think let it go and just, you know, don't feel bad. Okay. I don't see this as a demerit. I'm coming down now. This is from a fellow person who hates to drive, but I'm not going to see this as a demerit. Okay. But I do relate so much to it. Yeah. This is something both of us have battled. Um, but but I want you to remind me that I need to drive on the weekends. Like I, I want okay. to stay in the practice of driving. Yes. And so I don't want to be like, mm, no, I just, I just, oh, we need eggs. I just want to eat eggs for breakfast. So I don't have to go to the right. grocery store. Right, right. Okay. I'll remind you to drive while you're there. Okay, good. Okay. So tell us a gold star. What's like an uplifting thing? Okay. Well, Gretchen, recently Adam and I had our 10th wedding anniversary. Mm-hmm. Gold which star. Is amazing. Seems like obviously it went very fast as time does. And someone remarked to me, oh, Liz, your wedding was so beautiful. It's so much fun. And it got me thinking about <laughs> my wedding and remembering that. Um, and this is why mom gets a gold star. <laughs> Our mother planned my entire wedding. Yep. And not because she was being controlling and like a momzilla, because I asked her to, yep. because I was incredibly busy. It was like probably the busiest time of my life, just by coincidence. And I was just like, mom, I can't do anything. I, I just can't. And she stepped in and luckily she's an amazing party planner. So yeah. that was very helpful. And she did everything. She just said, well, what's the feel that you want? And I said, well, I'd like it to feel like the outdoors in. That's all I said. 
And I don't want to get married anywhere conventional. Yeah. Um, that was the other thing I said. And she just did it. Yep. And it's funny because mentioning like that, that not conventional. So I happened to be in Kansas City at some point and she's like, let's go look at wedding venues for Elizabeth. So we looked at these venues and we're like, oh, this is the place we should get. And like called you up and you were like, okay, fine. Sounds great. So I was actually part of, I had a tiny role, which is that I just accompanied her to several venues. Yes. You had more to do with my wedding planning than I did. So here's the question. I wonder if for mom it was secretly easier and more fun and better because she could just do it, you know what I mean, than having constant like back and forth and what do you think? And I mean, she because she does love to do that and she is excellent at it. And she did a fantastic job. I wonder that I'd be, I'm going to ask her. It probably was easier for her. The amazing thing about it, as many of my friends have said to me, is that it felt very much like my it wedding. It didn't feel like it no. was mom's wedding. No. It did really feel like us. It did. I mean, much better than anything I could have done on my own. But it it had a feeling of us. So um, it wasn't just like this, you know, sort of creation that we stepped into. It felt like of us, even though all I really did was show up. I didn't even go to a, t- a tasting. I mean, mom and dad <laughs> went to the tasting. But this is the amazing thing about mom. Not only does she have excellent taste and judgment for herself, but she can she can kind of channel other people's taste. For instance, For my older daughter, Eliza, who's 18 years old, my mother sent links to what she thought could be good prom dresses. And Eliza bought a prom dress that our mother suggested. I'm like, how do you how would you be able to pick out a prom dress? To me, this is like the most remarkable thing, like online. too. She has great taste. She She really does. She has great taste. But she can also imagine like sort of what someone else's taste would be for something. Right. I think it's extraordinary. But she did. Your wedding was gorgeous and very unusual and very true to you and Adam's kind of vibe. It was amazing. Yeah. So I give mom a big gold star for stepping in in my time <laughs> of need and taking care of me. And uh, it's been a great 10 years. So thanks, mom. Oh, what a great gold star. And that's it for this episode of Happier. Remember to try this at home read more. Let us know if you tried it and if it worked for you. And speaking of reading, thank you to our terrific guest, Sam Walker. If you need a gift for Father's Day for a father in your life, his book, The Captain Class, may be just the thing. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Also, thanks to our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and to Andy Bowers of Panoply. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Twitter at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Elizabeth Craft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com. We've said it once. We'll say it again. If you like this show, please be sure to tell a friend, subscribe to us on iTunes, rate or review us on iTunes. That helps other listeners find our show. And the resources for this week is that if you would like the one-page PDF about reading better than before, you can email me here, or you can look in the show notes for happiercast.com slash 121 for that PDF. And I also have uh, one-pagers for exercising better than before, eating better than before, and working better than before. If you would like to request those, you can do that. And if you want to sign up for my newsletter, which is free and comes out once every couple of weeks, that has highlights from my blog, from Facebook, from the podcast, more than 300,000 people get it. You can text me uh, at 66866 and in the message box, enter the word HAPPIER. And you'll get a text back asking you to enter your email address, type in your email, and you will get a confirmation. 
Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Kraft. And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and Upward. <laughs>